Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcast from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney. As you can tell by the title, we're reviewing a Christmas movie because it is the holiday season of 2016 right now. We're near the end of this kind of somewhat terrible year of 2016. And so since there's kind of horrible events have happened throughout this year, we figured it'd be smart to uh, review a horror movie for Christmas and stuff like that because... Christmas time of the year, all the Christmas movies get the kind of uh, their day in uh, the sun, or so, as it were, or something like that. I'm mixing up my metaphors here now. And since we love talking about horror movies, we decided to talk about that. And I keep using saying we. It's not, I always have a guest with me, and I have a very special guest with me today. Who's with me? My own inner thoughts. He is by himself. He likes talking to himself into a microphone. Just humor him with lots of views. I, it would be kind of sad if I actually just had to like if I just recorded two separate tracks and just splice them in together and make them sound like I had a conversation. Well, depending on your level of skill, that would actually be amazing. Well, yeah, if you could make it seamless, or if it was just you talking to the voice in your head, like "Hi, Tim. Thanks, Tim. How are you doing?" <laughs> well, but uh, one person having multiple voices is kind of the part of the subject matter of today's uh, podcast. But you haven't still haven't identified yourself, mystery guest. Oh, uh, you you fucking know who I am. It's Mike Wilson. Thanks for having me, buddy. Oh, yeah. We're doing a Canadian film today, guy. Uh, so we'll get be talking Canadian Canadian life for the rest of the podcast. But before we go any further, let's jump into our review of Black Christmas right now. <laughs> get into the actual movie and dive into it and uh all the things that are involved with it when did you first see this movie well i first saw it after i had first heard of it from the fantastic what was it halloween 25 years of terror mm-hmm. uh dvd documentary where they talk about like all the influences of halloween and how modern horror was really taking shape in the, be- the beginning of the 70s mm-hmm. so i took it upon myself to finally watch it after that um Definitely in, enjoyed the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not without its flaws. couple of flaws here and there. Every movie has its flaws. That's, like, the, that's the thing. They stand out, but they're not crippling. No. They don't detract the movie from what it aims to be. Mm-hmm. It aims to be very atmospheric. It really is probably... I, I can't say the first, because I'm sure it's not the first. There's millions of movies out there, but it is probably the first real iconic example of your stalking killer. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the most fam- first most famous examples of the killer's POV. Yeah, especially from the opening shot where you know everyone's singing all happy at a sorority house, mm-hmm. and the main killer, Billy. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me. Yeah, main killer Billy. Billy. <laughs> Billy Madison, as played by Adam Sandler. It sounds like him over the phone. <laughs> I mean, that would be terrifying if Adam Sandler was leaving in your attic trying to kill you. It'll be. It's even more terrifying that Adam Sandler still makes movies. <laughs> But yes, you have, you know, the whole killer's POV thing, which really was established. It was, I'd say it was really established here. Yeah. I mean, like, you had previous, like, 
All right, you go back to 1960, would you have like a, a one-two punch with both Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho, and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, which had in the POV of the killer through a camera. And so and like so he would stalk his ca- he would stalk his uh, victims through his camera and use like a tripod light to kill him and stuff like that. Then you had other movies come out like in like especially from Jalo films like uh, Mario Bava's uh, Blood and Black Lace in nineteen sixty five. Then you had in nineteen seventy one Bay of Blood, which is kind of like the f- where a lot of like the slasher tropes also came from where body count, like even so much so that a kill that was in Bay of Blood showed up in Friday the 13th Part 2 where a couple's making bed uh, making love in a bed they're, they're, making, ma- they're making their bed they're making their bed they get killed they're making love in bed and killer comes in with a uh, spear and uh, stabs it to the, the the back of the guy who's on top of the woman goes through him and through the woman and it goes right into the floor kind of like Friday the 13th Part 2 did the exact same thing unbeknownst to knowing of Bay of Blood's existence. And then you had, like, obviously, Dario Argento's Bird with the Crystal Plumage in 1970. And then eventually, kind of, all these things are starting to culminate into Black Christmas. And a lot of the techniques that were used in Black Christmas would go on to be perfected. Well, yeah, Black Christmas is very much an ingredient yeah. in the mix that would be the slasher genre of the 80s. Because, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was really well-established. You know, your mask killer with his signature weapon. Yes. But he wasn't, like, the stalking, you know, force. He was just a kind of a crazy person mm. with problems we can all relate to. Yes. Um, but, I, of course, the story of Black Christmas is that it's Christmas time right at a sorority house. Which is totally not in Canada. They yes, make, it, they make every every, every attempt. Uh, attempt to hide that with American flags all over the place. Uh, but like, there's every note that is a few pronunciation uh, choices. That's like ah, that's a little like like a it's by the house or the hoose. And I'm like ah, it's uh, by the hoose. I'm like ah, oh, that's the totally. Crack, they, they got Rob Ford to be in there before his untimely passing. Oh. They brought him down to the crack hoose. <laughs> and and the most of the house has gone away, gone home for. For the holidays, but a few people have decided to stay on for it, and there, a faceless killer has taken residence in the attic of the sorority house, unbeknownst to the women who are occupying it, and are start being killed off one by one. At the same time, <coughs> the killer is also using the second phone line in the house to call the house to prank call them in his psychotic babbling ways and the amazing ability to do two voices at once yeah which is not explained I think there's only like opera singers that could do that like very few yeah and I don't think most opera singers are mass murderers you never know it's it's a competitive business that's true but um so do you want to go further into the movie the plot or like the plot of the movie or do you want to start talking about characters it's up to you sir since you I'm actually at your house I'm a guest here so it is your choice um I'm going to suggest that you just give me all the money in your wallet, since you're giving me a full choice of everything. Well, within the confines of this podcast, sir. Yes, your your wallet, which is clearly <laughs> in your pocket as we podcast. How do you know it's in my pocket? Where else would you keep it? In my car. Really? Um, you're just asking for trouble, aren't you? <laughs> yes, it's in my pocket, and no, it's not in my car. I don't uh, keep it there. No, I mean, like, we'll get to know everyone. I mean, you can't do the plot without the characters, so, I mean... Yes. You, get, so, you got the girls of the sorority house. There's pretty much only four primary ones, ones that yeah. we meet. Let's start with Olivia Hussey. Olivia Hussey, the, the the beautiful and radiant and ageless Olivia Hussey. Truly, like, you're, you're correct, though. She has not aged, like... Like, Very slightly. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a picture of her I saw, like, I was looking at her Wikipedia page before we started doing the podcast, and it's like, sure, the 
picture someone who's 10 years old, but, like, she's aged gracefully, that's for sure. And it's really tremendous for that. You, you can only hope that, like, hopefully I'll age that gracefully. Probably not, probably though. Probably not. We just no. came from Wendy's, so probably not. No, yeah. You're probably going to regret our decisions there. But anywho, she is the primary lead of this of this picture, known as Jess. Um, you also have a young Margaret Ki- uh, Margaret Margot Kidder. Margot Kidder. Before the insanity and before Superman 1 and 2 <laughs> and 3 and 4. The, they said he was too bad three and four. Uh, well, no, not so much three because she wasn't really a part of three. That's true. But yeah, she's there. She is the. She's pretty much the uh, party girl. Yes, as, as would be known as today, hoe of the group, always drinking. She's, she's play- not really a hoe because she doesn't like really fuck around during this movie or anything. She just she just gets trashed all the time. But all she does is talk about sex too. That's true. So, do you feel like she's not getting laid enough because she's? T- constantly- I think she. I think she's just nuts and just wants a party. That's I think true. that's it. I think just all, all she cares about is having fun, having a good time. Of course. At the expense of responsibilities, health. And everybody else's... Uh, everyone around her. Everybody around her and everybody's sensibilities around her, too. Uh, she plays Barbara, who's known as Bar or Barb. Barb. <laughs> like George H.W. Bush is in there. Bar. The Bar. Um, we also have the characters of Phyllis, known as Phil. Um, her actress, Andrea Martin, actually came back for the shitty remake. Yes, she was, the, she was the dead mother in about, the remake. Yeah, about, thir- what, 32 years later? Yes. You have her. Uh, you have, very briefly, the character of Claire, who gets killed off very quickly in the beginning. She's kind of like the Drew Barrymore in Scream of this movie. Yeah, pretty much. She's there just to, you know, set up the danger that is this guy. Right. Um, you have the house mother. And was, wasn't she the one that, who, wasn't she the one to pick up the phone first, or was Jess pick up the phone the first time? Jess picked it up. Okay, the very first time. remember her, okay. o- her overacted, hello? Hello? Yes, Olivia Hussey in this movie. Hussey? Jess. Hussey, well, you, Hussey. You, you, you went very Canadian right there. Hussey. Pronun- uh, pronunciating Hussey pronouncing her, her name. In her hoose. And her hooser. That's because I don't want to call – I don't want a to hussy? call – A hussy, yes. It's like – It is such like a pejorative, old, derogatory term. And it's an old one too. It's like yeah. you don't call – like women are not called hussies anymore these days. I mean like it's rare like, oh, like that woman, yeah, she's a real hussy or something like that. Like even amongst like people who would make those kind of comments, it's not a term that's brought up often. But it, it, even so, her actress I have like the utmost of respect for because she's phenomenal. Yeah. And even even as even as Norman Bates's mother in Psycho Four, she wasn't a hussy. It's, oh God, I forgot she was in Psycho. She 4. was Norman Bates's mother. Oh, I remember there was a marathon AMC with all the psychos on that, and that was like I spent a good day watching that, and I, I felt like Norman Bates afterwards. So just going descending to madness. Yes, between that and RoboCop three, and a CCH <laughs> pounder at her best. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> And, of course, we have the legendary John Saxton as, uh, as, Lieutenant, as Lieutenant Fuller. Fuller. Fuller, go easy on the Pepsi, if we're going to have more Christmas movie references there. And we're actually finding out that he was actually not supposed to originally play Lieutenant Fuller. It was supposed to be, who is it, legendary? Uh, uh, Edmund O'Brien. Edmund O'Brien, legendary actor, actor Edmund O'Brien. But, ve- like, days before uh, filming was to begin, he was really starting to show the guys in production how old and how fucked up he was because he was really beginning to have like the early stages of Alzheimer's and tried his damnedest to stay with the production because he because he didn't want to it's almost like he didn't want to admit defeat or something like that yeah but they unfortunately had to recast and on two days notice John Saxon took the role so that's off to him as usual yeah because like all right 
like we'll jump to John Saxon really quickly just for this point. But like, have you ever seen a bad John Saxon performance? No. No, I mean like they're always serviceable and everything. Not saying like he's like Danny Day Lewis or anything like that, but like he's always top notch in whatever he does. Whether even it's in the five minutes and from dusk till dawn, he is like just as the exposition of who the Gecko Brothers are. Love him in that, or in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street as the as Nancy's father, and then uh, Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon. I Around think, the time when this movie came out, I totally forgot he was in Enter the Dragon. Enter it's the been Dragon. years since I've seen Enter the Dragon, so. I believe Enter the Dragon was a few years within this movie. Yeah. Um, I believe that's 1973. I, I could be mistaken. 73 or 74. Well, this was 74. Right. So it was probably shot earlier. And But then, then of course, you had like Tenebrae in the 80s with like the Zario Argento movie and so many on afterwards. But let's go back to Olivia Hussey and her character, Jess. Your feelings on her. Um... The character or Olivia Hussey? Uh, the character first. Okay. The character, she, she, I mean, you, you you can tell that the character really has, like, a lot stressing her out. She, she does pull off the stressed out, worried, and as we find out, she has more than, you know, her fair share of things to be stressed ample out Ample reasons worried. to be um, stressed out. But she definitely plays it off good. Originally, as I first watching it, kind of felt she had sort of a stick up her ass. But right. you really sort of, it, when it sinks in, like... Not only dealing with the troubles at the sorority house, but mm-hmm. also, as we will get into, troubles with her boyfriend. Her yeah. boyfriend, Peter. Played by, oh, uh, crap. Kier D'Elia, as uh, it is written here. Kier D'Elia. Never heard of that. No. Well, Peter, we're going to refer to him as Peter from now on. We're refer to him as, as Peter. Peter. Peter! Uh, Anywho, the movie begins, you know, they're all having a sorority party before everyone goes away. Mm-hmm. Their uh, house mother, Mrs. Mack, comes and joins. A house mother who has Homer Simpson levels of alcohol abuse. We're hiding booze in the toilet. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, everywhere does she hide. I mean, in, like, in a book, like literally cuts out the, like, like comically, like you see in cartoons where like, like carved around it. The skeleton key is hidden in the ancient tome. No, it's the, the fucking bottle of bourbon is hidden in the, in the encyclopedia. So presumably, well, of Unless course, someone like, needs to study out of that book. Well, it goes to show you like how many people are actually studying the encyclopedia. A. <laughs> B. I, I presume it's supposed to be a dry campus. That's why, like, that's no alcohol on, on the sorority grounds. Hence, why she had it. Despite the fact that Barb is drunk twenty four seven. Yeah, and she, you can see her clearly drinking even in the first Everywhere. scene. Yeah. See, if that, if if the booze is that much like important to you, just keep it in your room. Like, just have like a fucking. Hide it in the floorboards. Hide it under your floor, like Joe Pesci in Casino. <laughs> I mean, how much alcohol could I actually hide in the floorboards of my house? Yeah, then invest it in illegal mob activities. <laughs> of course. Um, when she pulls it out of the toilet, peekaboo, you fuck, fuck you. you. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, they're enjoying their their Christmas sorority party before everyone goes away. Right. Um, but the sorority house has apparently been, obsce- uh, uh, been receiving very obscene phone calls. Yes. So obscene to the point that I swear to God they hired a young Rob Zombie on the other line to say this dialogue because it is right up his alley. This is like some like he probably watched this movie and then said, "That's how what can, I can do." He watched this movie and said, "How can I make a film career on this dialogue alone? How can I take this dialogue and turn it into a movie?" And somehow he did it. I mean, that's off to you, sir. I mean, I don't watch you fucking movies anymore. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is kind of sad statement as a filmmaker myself. Like he's able to do that and find success. Michael he, Bay, Roland Emmerich, it's true. Uva Bowl. So you saying all you have to do is kiss a lot of ass, 
and, they will, and they will walk up to your house with a big bag with a dollar sign on it and hand it to you. She's saying there's a chance even for me. There's a chance even for you if you're willing to give up all your uh, convictions, morals, hopes, dreams, everything, and just be a tool. You're thinking about it. I could see it in your eyes. I'm thinking of tools, so. <laughs> just don't make any puns on Hollywood's doorstep or else they'll blacklist you. <laughs> I mean, like, as long as I don't tweet about the uh, a movie that I know is going to be Blacklist bad. me like Spike Lee. Uh-huh. <laughs> Get it? <gasps> That's him saying it, not me. Anyway, back to... You would have. <laughs> <laughs> back to Jess. She's the first one to answer the phone and dealing with the obscene phone calls. But, like, she does the obscene phone call does not start speaking right away. She's like, picks up the phone. Hello? Hello? V- yes, very boisterous, I'd say. Almost if she, as if she thought she was still on the set of Romeo and Juliet. Seriously? Hello? Pardon? Like yelling, like it's not. I mean, you, Christ! You, like the person's not deaf on the other side of the phone. That, and you're a not, deaf person does not and use everyone, the phone. And like everyone that. in your house is in the other room. Like I mean, like I understand acting's their choices and stuff like that. And she decided to play like every phone conversation. She played it big. Well, more towards the end because she was very frightened. Be like, hello, hello, hello. It's the like pronunciation like of the word hello. Sounds more like Mrs. Doubtfire by the end. Hello. Hello? I must look like a Yeti in this getup. You have a Janaya Doubtfire, dear. <laughs> oh my god, it's perfect. Oh, you wicked man. That's what she should have said. <laughs> She's running away from him in the house. Help is on the way, dear. Get yeah, your hair yanked by the killer. The as, Mar- as Margot Kidder is being killed upstairs. Help is on, on the way, way dear. Leaping <laughs> over the banister. <laughs> no, I just want, I want to see somebody. Just feed Billy spicy shrimp. Uh, He'll die from the allergic reaction if Billy was played by Pierce Brosnan. Yes, this is how I reacted to losing James Bond. Freaking out on the phone, prank calling people. Well, anywho, the interesting part is that I find, at least, is that he, he makes these calls, like, right after, like, literally moments after he gets into this crowded house. Like, yeah, no one's upstairs, but I mean... And presumably he's already called before he before. got there. Because they say, hey, the, the breather is back. And, like, so presumably he's already phoned the house before he even got there. And if you're being that loud over the phone, even upstairs people are going to hear you. Even, I mean, like. Did he just stop for DQ on the way? You know, like he called his breathing thing, went to Dairy Queen. <laughs> or what do they have up in Maple Syrup Queen? Uh, and, then, uh, and then came back and did another call. Maybe I don't know, but and then like the dialogue is the dialogue is definitely something for seventies. Uh, something to make you cringe a bit. Oh, yeah, a lot I mean, of sea bombs being dropped. A lot even of... still today, like I'm, I'm, I was rewatching it yesterday, and I'm like, wow, that is very coarse. I'm surprised they didn't get slapped with like an NC seventeen rating and stuff like that. But then again, The Exorcist had came out the months prior, so I guess uh, they have that kind of R rating. So and. That got an R rating without any cuts, um, if I remember correctly. If it was either that or something else. It was either that. This one got an R rating with lots of cunts. Oh, ho, 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 ho. dropped quite a few C-bombs in this uh, yeah, like, movie. And it's just like, like, I, I, like, like it, the Billy the, on the phone is saying, like, I want to get a big cunt. A lot of slurping, honking, <laughs> snorting noises. And you're just like reenacted by a resident pervert Tim over here. Hey, you did it so properly, so you must have had practice calling women <laughs> and leaving them messages like that. 
I, I usually do this. I, I leave audio tapes as a, as a ding dong ditch, so they have to put it in a tape recorder, and it's like, oh, what is this? You want to ding dong the ditch? <laughs> oh. Anyway, uh, and so and the, the big thing about <laughs> Jess's character, it's kind of like makes her stand out from other slasher, like I guess not even that, like just other horror movie or woman characters and stuff like that. That she's pregnant. Well, yes, we find this out. We find it out, and she wants to have an abortion, and her boyfriend, who's the, which is the father of her child, of their child, uh, wants to keep it. Well, well, getting on track. I mean, if we're going with the plot. Yeah. Uh, Billy does eventually the the character who identifies himself as Billy, the killer. He does strike to show you that there is real danger, as we said. The character of Claire is killed off almost immediately in a pretty suspenseful man- manner. Yeah, because she's one of the people that is supposed to be leaving. Leaving uh, to go to go visit, getting picked up by her papa. So nobody um, bats an eye that she's she's missing it for a while because they say like, oh, she's already left and she has a boyfriend on campus that her father does not know about. So she goes up to her room to get, start packing and she hears something in the back of her closet. She slowly approaches it and, and we has, see the POV in the closet behind like the the, the plastic dry, dry cleaner bag, the plastic dry cleaning bag, and like uh, shit. And when you're looking at it, you think he's not back there. He's going to strike another way, but instead he does. Like they did a really good job at the lighting, yeah, of camouflaging him back there. And even I, I have the uh, what year is it? Two thousand six DVD, I think, right? Or two thousand eight something DVD where they took it from a new high def transfer and you still can't see him. No, and it's one question you actually brought up before that you bought the Shot Factory. Yes, uh, at the time of this recording, I just recently purchased the recently, very recently released, as in days ago released. Excuse me, Shot Factory Blu-ray of Black Christmas mm-hmm. uh, from a two, new two K master, um, and it's original aspect ratio of one eight five. The DVD is in one seven eight for some reason. And you can kind of tell it does feel a little tight at times, right? On the DVD, this is like so. What, they presumably stretched the one eight five to fit the sixteen by nine or seven one seven eight one seven eight aspect ratio, which always found it was just a little. Irksome. It does feel like it's a little zoomed. Yeah, it's a, it's in like if it's been like okay, you think of it this way, like uh, RoboCop was shot one six six, but presume when most of the times we watched, we watched in one eight five. Would you want to watch it in 166 versus the 185? I'd want to watch it in whatever gets me, whatever it's supposed to be, whatever it was meant to be on theater, and or gives me the most picture detail. Right. If it's supposed to be something that's supposed to be in like 235, but, you know, they did it with by putting the fucking mats. Yeah. I mean, then I wouldn't want to see it in open mat unless it's like something I love and it's like, eh, I'll take an open mat version, you know, just to see more, just to get more of this experience. But mm. I, I tend to go for original intent. Yeah. Um, like sometimes it's like it was shot in 239, but it was released in 24 to 1. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to really get any balls about that. But something like uh, the Criterion, just for specifically when we had Robocop brought up, the Criterion laser disc you have is that. 185 or was that 166? I don't know off the top of my head. Do, mm. do we want to interrupt this podcast to look? Nah, fuck it. Fuck it. Another day. That'll be for us. Yeah. That'll be the mystery. Yes. So, Claire goes upstairs and she gets killed and she becomes kind of like the almost star victim of the movie because she... Everyone's looking for Everybody's looking for He hides her up in the attic with, the, with the, the dryer bag over her head still, puts her in a rocking chair, rocks her back and forth and almost talks to her. Like, we're, we're kind of getting an idea of how... what. Where this killer is fucked up, he's going to get some fucked up thing with women. Yes. Uh, some of his calls later on, which we will also discuss more, are like him arguing with like a, another female character, like his mother or something. Or, or sister. sister yeah. yeah, you know, like we, we, 
and, and even the the uh, the director, he even kind of even kind of feels like this guy has like, but the director Bob Clark, he even talks about that in his head he has Billy's backstory where he's like some fucked up guy who was abused by women and then hates women and then goes out and abuses women and he looks for more to recreate that. Mm. But um, hence why he keeps Claire's body up there, and as we will talk about later, Mrs. Mack when he finally gets her her body up there. Right. I'm sorry. I'm like I just had a very weird case of deja vu because I was looking up stuff for Robocop and Laserdisc, sitting here talking about this, and I, I do not know why I I remember exactly doing this. This is very strange. What? Not to, looking up something that has nothing to do with your podcast? No. Uh, hey. Anyway, so. Following day, her father shows up to pick her up and take her home and stuff like that, and she is nowhere to be found. Claire's father, who looks like the most stuffiest old just just thing, <laughs> everything about this guy just screams the word snooty. He has this look on his face like at, like, like he smelled a fart at all times. <laughs> I don't think he's that bad of a guy. Oh, I think he's. I think he's. I think atrocious. he's actually considerate, dude. That's only because he's worried about his daughter's life. He has to be considerate. <laughs> You're saying if his okay, so if his I think he would, I think he just looks down on young people. He's one of those just old fucks. So he looks like an old fuck. He acts like an old fuck. So fuck it. He even looks down on Mrs. Mack. Oh, because she's this is not the place I thought it went my daughter to be when he gets to the dorm room later. Oh yeah, because she has all like the kind of free love posters and stuff like that. And, Hippie like, stuff, you know. This is post Woodstock. And, and then she has like her post a picture of her and her boyfriend on her nightstand, and he's like, "I didn't send my daughter away to have relationships." I don't approve of these. Be, 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 be. Who farted? <laughs> Get um, me some tea and crumpets. I mean, uh, don't worry. I'm gonna pass out from shock later Haste. on. Um. So. Even I even love that moment where like he bumps the guy who's running like the uh, watching the little kids early in his first scene like bumps into him. Yeah, one of the friends, and he's just like, ah, "I'm sorry." He's like, "Well, I like," it. and he just kind of gets snooty with him, and the guy and the guy's just snooty back to him like, "Fine, fuck you. I'm just gonna walk away." And then he points him in the direction of the sorority house because it's she's a half an hour late, and it's not like his daughter because in his eye, his daughter is very punctual and everything, and doesn't have a relationship with boys. <laughs> Let's talk about our stocks. <laughs> so as we smack our wives around the house, just like that. <laughs> exactly. On so, that guy. So he goes to the sorority house looking for his daughter, runs into the den mother, and. <laughs> And just disapprovingly runs her down and everything with with just the look. Driving her to drink even more. Yeah, and she even just like Fuck behind you. his yeah behind his back is basically just shit talking him and just flipping the bird at any chance she gets. Mm-hmm. So eventually they decide like, all right, I'm going to go down to the police station and report a missing person. At the same time, the sorority house is uh, with their she's there pretty much running a kind of a children's charity with, thing. Yeah, and with their one one of the sorority. Uh, Sister's uh, boyfriend is playing Santa Claus, and he's being like the most vulgar Santa Claus. He doesn't. Been. He doesn't want to be there. <laughs> Understandably, he doesn't like anything. He's swearing in front of children. Now I wonder if he actually saying that on the day, or if that was just looped. Uh, it could be ad lib because he had that big Santa Claus beard. Yeah. His famous line is the child is sitting on his lap. Ho ho! Oh, fuck. fuck! And Margot Kidder is just like just dr- knock drinking. it back, knock it back. Heavily sh- drinking. And does you know, and the kids are just kind of like, oh, this is Santa Claus is kind of weird. I don't know how to deal with this. And it's like, oh, and he's like, he's ho ho fuck. And like, ah, oh, America's this bitch. <laughs> and just like, it's more and more, and like, it's a running thing with this movie that is incredibly vulgar for its time. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot that really just shows like 
a generational gap of how like fucked up the young are at that age, how like unhinged and uninhibited they are. Not saying I'm saying like I, I'm incredibly vulgar too. But they also show like the old people as either completely stuck up snooty or closet unhinged. Yeah. And like hiding booze in the toilet. Of course. I I thought this is every adult does that, but apparently I'm mistaken. Anyway. Um and then the father ends up going to the police station to report the missing person and deals with one of the most incompetent cops in probably movie history. I mean, fuck. You oh, think, you think Sergeant the, Nash. You think the cops like in like Last House on the Left or Hilton, <laughs> uh, Halloween 5 are bad? I mean, this fucker takes the cake with just incompetence and like not being able to communicate with people. Your feelings on him. Um, he's the comic relief of the piece. Yes. He, he's, like, he's the, uh, the curly to Moe and Larry. He's the one that generally just you know messes everything up, and he really does too. No, oh, yeah, he totally does. Like unintentionally and like in in a just a, co- a comedic sense, and then in the actual life or death situation, he fucks up. Yes, even though he which, tries to, he tries we, not to, which we will get to. <laughs> we will get to. But so the father goes down to report it, and at the same time, the story sisters. I have to start their own kind of little investigation run by Jess, kind of like, where's Claire? She Je- hasn't shown up. Jess has recruited Claire's boyfriend, Chris. Who kicks in the... the uh, Police station doors <laughs> yelling at Sergeant Nash about nothing being done. Because, and he also is like, ah, he probably, she's probably shacked up or something, because he made like kind of like a judgmental statement about her, because that's why she'll turn up. She's probably shacked up with somebody like that. And of right course, her, the girl's father. Yeah, because that's a real class act thing to do. And at the same time... Uh, Margot Kidder is like uh, is asked like, all right, what's the uh, phone number to the sorority uh, house? Barb, uh, Barb decides to play a little prank on Sergeant Nash for for his uh, incompetence and stupidity, and she proves it perfectly. Oh God, yeah. She she gives him the phone number, but with a um, An extension, different, different extension, different exchange, uh, an exchange known as FE for fellatio, and. Now, for some of the listeners, I hope you would know what fellatio is. It is the performing of oral sex on a man. Or a woman. Or a woman. Oh, no. It's oral it's, sex. No, no, no. Uh, for women, it's kind of lingus. Yeah, still. Yeah, it's oral sex, if we want to say it like that. And Sergeant Nash shows how... Uh, Dumb. He is, or just, like, sheltered he is by saying, like, huh, fellatio, huh? How do you spell it? Straight face. And then Margaret Kidd is like, tries not to laugh in his face. And she spells it out for him and everything like that. And so he, he writes that into the official report of the of the police station. And it comes back to bite him in his ass because Lieutenant Fuller is going off the initial report of the Claire missing. He's reading it. And one of the other cops is sitting at his desk. Just, a few just feet away. watching his reaction. Just wait. He's been waiting. It seems like he's been waiting all day for this reaction. Yes. And, and at some point, I think I would be too. I, I think that was. I, I think that laugh was genuine. I mean, like, how would you be able to react like that? I think that, I probably. That's just too much. You would lose your shit up. It's just so slow. Like he's. You, you see the cop watching John Saxon, watching Lieutenant Fuller, watching the wheels turn, and then the minute he notices that Lieutenant Fuller gets it, he just starts laughing hysterically. <laughs> and and he, then when Fuller calls Nash in, he just laughs even harder because Nash <laughs> is just so, just over his head. Yeah. And he's like, and then, like, even at the point, like, fellatio, huh? I'm like, yeah, it's new exchange. Fuller walks away. Nash is still standing there listening to the other cop laugh. And he's like, something dirty, isn't something it? Something dirty, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I mean, 
mother of God, they don't even that's like what's, That's like, the, that is like the icing on the prank cake when someone that you play a joke on... Doesn't get it. Doesn't get it, and then at the end says something that makes it even funnier. I mean, like... It compounds how much they don't get it. Oh. I mean, I've had a few of the situations in my life where, like, that perfect situation has worked out like that, but... It's one of the highlights for me with this movie is just how funny that moment is. So, at the same time, this is going on. Billy is starting to make more phone calls. And this is when Jess also starts to do who had talked to her boyfriend earlier. Well, we, we haven't really gotten much into the boyfriend. Jess, the very next morning after all this shit, goes to visit her boyfriend, Peter, who is a music student at the conservatory of the college. Yes. And you could really just tell by how they interact that this relationship is pretty much on its last legs anyway. Yeah. Like, like she's sick of him. Things aren't going well. And then on top of that, she reveals to him that she is pregnant. Right. She and doesn't want it because she doesn't want him anymore. No. She do- still has well, goals. Wants to have a life. Wants to have a life. He, he you know, still wants to have his future as a, as a concert pianist. Yeah. And he is quite the pianist. Ha ha! As soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, he's going to make a joke. He like is that. quite it's... the pianist in this. Uh, oh, movie. boy. So she wants to get an abortion. Still at a time when abortions, well, they're still fucking taboo, but I mean, yeah. like, nobody did abortion. If you did, you were quiet, and it was usually one of those back alley ones that killed you. Yeah, it's rare that something like that was brought up in conversation. I mean, like, like a year later, you had uh, Godfather Part 2, where... Um, uh, K. K. I was going to say, K reveals it that. It was like, an abortion, abortion, Michael. An abortion. And you saw the look on Michael's face. He was ready to tear a fucking head and, and he does, And he fucking whacks her across the room because of that. And you're like, whoa. I mean, I bet you that probably still happens to, to this very day that that probably happens. But, like, sadly, we don't want that to happen. But how they kind of play it and they don't try and. Um, it's not for shock value, this uh, situation. No, it really is like. It really is to show how, like, fucked up their relationship is and how this is, like, the last thing their relationship really needed. Yeah, and, like, how, how college uh, relationships can go. I mean, there are one or two people I, I know when I went to college like that, that had a situation, and it's, like, really shitty, and, like, those kind of questions are brought up. But the disagreement of having the abortion or not, it kind of, like, kind of drives Pete, like, not It ruins the, his day. Yeah, and that's the day he's supposed to be, like, he has an audition for the, uh, what was it, Conservatory Judges or something like that? Yeah, or, where he's basically having a uh, recital for people. And it totally... He's basically being graded. Yeah. It's, it's his final, and he's being graded. He has to perform in front of many of the senior people at the college. And he just, his performance, my, I, I could make a better, I could play that better with my feet. I mean, That's how off-key he is. And, like, and it's just like, oh, and you're like, what the hell? Like, who's playing the harmony? Because they start in tight on his hands. You're like, what the hell? Why is it playing such an awful kind of piano music? And then they pull back, and you see it's him, and he's sweating bullets. He's sweating bullets. He looks like he's on the pot trying to squeeze one out. And then it cuts to the judges. The judges and, with and, their dis- look of disdain. I mean, like, such to say, it's like almost like the judges in Back to the Future, where it's Huey Lewis and the four of the judges, and, like, I wish the guy would be saying, like, thank you, but you are, you play just too darn loud. That would just be... That would have been perfect for me. Anyway. That'd be great if he played Eddie Van Halen. I, I mean, like, since he played so much kind of, like, classically themed music. He should have played, played Johnny B. Good. He <laughs> might have won. He made it. He made it. And he... saved his siblings from being erased from time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, Peter's pissed off. Jess's relationship is shit. Her house is being fucking harassed. Her roommate is missing. Things are. It's it's a pretty bad day at the sorority house so far. And the house, the dead mother is about to leave. 
And about to leave. <laughs> about to leave. She's getting ready. The taxi driver is honking on his horn, like trying to get everybody, trying to get the whoever he's supposed to pick up out of the house. But since she spent the whole day drinking, she's late. Of course. And chasing after the, their pet cat that lives in the house. And somehow, like you hear, like you hear, like movement upstairs. So she presumes that it's the cat, not knowing that it's Billy. So she cl- she ascends L- the ladder to the stairs. She's lured into the attic, where a pulley system, with complete with hook, is waiting for her. And so she's looking around like. Where the hell are you? And Billy's holding it like Ace Ventura. He should have said, hey, guys, guess what? It's nap time. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And he really hooks her in with that uh-huh. and drags her up into the attic. And, um, and she becomes officially a hooker because <laughs> she's hung on a fucking hook. Oh, yeah. And that's the second victim that is now residing in the, in the attic. The addict? The addict. Well, she is an addict. She's addict. addicted to booze. <laughs> Later on in the day, we have a... Or actually, kind of like... At the same time, we see a mother reporting her child is missing to the uh, Lieutenant Fuller. Yeah, this is kind of the red herring of the film. This is kind of something I really didn't enjoy too much because it, it was just kind of thrown in there. It was to get everybody out of the house. To get everyone out of the house and to just show that, like, there's a greater danger than just what's waiting for them. But I feel like it was just... I always thought he was... It was throwaway. I... Kind of, in my mind, think Billy's responsible for that. Um, he could be, I'm sure. I mean, I'm saying, like, if we take into account what Bob Clark has said about uh. his spree before his uh, these events of the movie and kind of what happens, like, where this little girl disappears and then is found dead later on in the night in a park, it, it, <laughs> it's not a stretch that you think that Billy's responsible for. He says he's murdering so many women. No, not at all. It's just because of the fact that we don't know anything about Billy. That's another one of my gripes. There's nothing established about this killer except he sneaks into a sorority house and slowly picks them off one by one after unnerving them with harassing phone calls. Right. There's nothing to... I, I mean, you could say that there was nothing establishing about Leatherface. You know, we don't see him until they finally arrive at his fucking house. No. But, but the one, way the rest of the movie goes... One instruction, by the way. Well, yes, but the way the rest of the movie goes, it slowly tells you his story. Mm-hmm. That, like, oh, shit, we stumbled onto this family of cannibals. There's nothing really saying that, like, Billy could, if anything, be just some, like, some, some co- you know, colleges have legends and stuff of about course. stuff. Some sorority guy who went nuts and hacked up a bunch of people or whatever. There's literally nothing. He's just someone that we are introduced to from his point of view shot who goes up into an attic action. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And, like, even... um. To the point of, like, speaking of, like, legends, like, one of the things that kind of inspired this movie is the babysitter story that a woman is, like, watching a uh, two young kids. The kids are asleep, and she, they, the babysitter keeps getting phone calls from somebody who keeps saying, go check the children, go check the children. To the point that she calls the police to have them put a trace on the call. And when a stranger they, calls. When a stranger calls. Like, that's the inspiration. Like, when a stranger calls took kind of the hysteria, the idea for that story as well as the kind of the ideas of Black Christmas and <coughs> made it into a movie. The only problem was with the adaptation of the movie When a Stranger Calls is the first 20 minutes is fantastic. I mean, perfection of horror filmmaking. The rest of the movie. He's that's kinda, about it. Huh? Yeah. It's like, like, as soon as like, Charles Durning is introduced, like, and I love Charles Durning, but it's like, all right, the movie kind of falls off after that. So what were you going to say? I don't know what I was going to say. I don't know, but like... Uh, I, was talking about, I was talking about how this, this whole subplot, I guess, of the kidnapped child, it's just kind of, feels kind of thrown in there, feels kind of like the MacGuffin of the film, just something Killer. that's there, just something that's there just to make something in the plot happen. Right. Because, yeah. they, because of 
before that, like before the dead mother is killed, like it's everybody's back at the house, and Margaret Kidder is continuing to get more and more drunk and making everybody feel very uncomfortable because. If you've dealt with alcoholics, you have all had those moments where you've tried to just ignore it. I'm good. I'm good. Oh. I was waiting, like I was waiting, I'm like he's going to bring him up, isn't he? Speaking of MacGuffins, <laughs> things that are just there to move something in life along <laughs> downward. Do you want to identify a hobo uh, baggins? Hobo baggins? No, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about hobo baggins. Okay, friends of friends of ours will know who he is. If they listen to this. Old one who listens to this. Yeah. Other than me. Anywho. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we just went down a depressing line there. Bar has pretty much, like, gone to sleep after being yelled at by everyone because she's too much of a drunk. And she kind of, she, I think, she has a little outburst where she feels that everyone points to the finger of Claire disappearing because of her. Because she kind of was hard on Claire. She kind of picked on Claire quite a bit. And, and, like, even to the point like, where she says, like, I know a class A, I know a cl- class a virgin when I see her. When I was, or it's like, like, really being very mean to her and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, that's a bit much. But, like, then I stop and think, I'd say some really terrible things about people I didn't really like but, and kind of were in proximity of. But just, I don't know, just there's so much venom behind her words, even, like, even if she doesn't mean it or not. But... So she goes up to bed, and Jess and uh, well, uh, I forget, fuck, I forget. Phil, Phil are the only other two people in the house. Um, they, they, has, all, they all join in the search. Basically, Barb stays passed out for pretty much the rest of the movie. I don't think does Jess start. Jess is there because she leaves early to go meet with Peter. Right, Peter. Peter. No, yeah, she she doesn't join the search. She does join the search. Oh, okay. Peter, who, by the way, has now just completely destroyed a piano with a microphone stand showing how uh, the grip on reality and his sanity he has. Because he wants to leave the conservatory now. Like, he wants to leave it now, now that he's having a child. Yeah. And, and he wants to fight with Jess about it. And it's funny because like, I almost applied for the conservatory at SUNY Purchase, and I'm kind of uh, glad I didn't. Cause I, I didn't oh, know it's I, insane. Yeah, I, I would have probably gone around the bend if I had to deal with stuff like that. I would have destroyed more than the piano if I had to deal with that kind of stuff. Anyway, the big search happens for this little girl to get everyone together. Um, Jess has to leave early to meet with Peter because he wants to. Right. Uh, she gets home and there's another, of course, harassing call. Yes. Um, but we get a nice POV shot coming down the stairs thinking that Billy is going to strike. And it turns out it's actually Peter who snuck in the house and took a nap. Yeah. And you wonder, like, um, okay, I understand, like, when people, like, People have had like the kind of like the house kind of house format like on campus stuff like that. And as soon as we we had like the village where like the nicer houses on campus where you had six people to a house, and as long as you, like you knew the code, like you were able to get in. But a boyfriend is going in there and staying in her room while she was not there. Not out of the ordinary. You can also tell by his demeanor that something's a, there's a little screw loose. And, he, and he's just like, I'm fine. Right now, all things are I'm pointing. Good. To, right now, all things are pointing towards him as Billy. Because, like we, like I said in the beginning, Billy, and I'm doing air quotes because that's what he identifies himself as. Right. Peter is kind of the the, uh, the leading suspect here. Yes. And so then, while they're having their talk, the uh, body of the little girl is found. Yes. Dead. <laughs> well, yeah. But uh, and then. I forget what was it. Uh, Peter leaves again. Where he Peter uh... Peter gets pissed off and leaves while leaving at the exact same time that uh, Lieutenant Fuller and Phil and Mister Harrison everyone show back up at the house. Right. Lieutenant Fuller gets a good view of him, just you know, like who was leaving that? all pissy and angry. Yeah. And finally, you know, they they talk about the 
the harassing phone calls that fucking dumbass Nash left out of, you know, his report that yes. Fuller found out later after a little girl had gone missing and found dead. They put a wiretap on the sorority house's phone. Mm. And just basically, ha- they basically say you have to keep this guy in the line as long as possible. Which, like, she's not really conversing with the guy. She's just listening to him ramble and rant. So, like, I don't know how you kind of engage in a conversation to keep him on the line. And even so much so, like, he calls once, they try to trace it, he hangs up, full of calls are back saying, you got to keep him on the line, and you have to stop a question. They're like, how? How am I supposed to converse with um, somebody who's speaking in tongues at 100 miles an hour? Yeah. I mean, in the meanwhile, like, they left an officer outside of her house, which if you watch horror movies, that's useless. They might as well, oh, just, yeah. might as well just left her, like, a jar of pickles or something. No, they should have, like, left a six-foot, like, cardboard standy of a cop. Yes, they should have. That would have, like, you could have used it as a weapon against him. Like, that would have been more useful than the actual cop sitting there. But uh, uh, Lieutenant Fuller um, goes and inspects. He has a hunch about Peter. Right. He goes and he checks out the conservatory. They see the smashed piano and everything. And later on, while he's waiting for one of these guys' calls, Peter calls uh, Jess, crying, sobbing hysterically, but don't kill the baby. Like, he's so upset and despondent and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And one of um, Billy's calls actually references killing a baby. And Jess yeah. has, her, has her reaction, oh, my God. Because presumably he was within earshot. While they were having the conversation before he stormed out of the house. Mm-hmm. That's how we picked up on that information. Lieutenant Fuller thinks differently, though. He's, he, he, he hears her reaction and sees, like, there's something this girl's hiding me. So when she finally goes through with it all and tells him about it, mm. that's where, like, that's where basically in Fuller's mind it is fucking Peter. Yeah. And at that time, like, the Billy calls back again and continues to go on and on and on and, and Jess stays on the line. And they were actually finally able to get the trace. And they say, like, oh, it's coming from 6 Belmont Street. Like, and Nash is the one con- conveying this like, information. No, Nash, to- you're a dumbass. It's, that's the house it's coming from. That's the point of origin. No, sir, it's coming from because the, they, they told him that there's a second line. Yeah. So the calls are coming from within the house. And then that's when Fuller has the real moment. just like, oh, shit. Which also completely knocks out Jess's whole thing about that she was talking with Phil before Phil was uh, whisked away and killed. Yeah. About how it couldn't have been Peter. He was with me when the call were made. Right. Yes, he was with you in the house. Mm-hmm. Where there's a second line. And this time, like, both Barb and Phil have been murdered. And, like, Barb's death is kind of like kind of like the iconic kill of the movie because she's... Well, Bar- su- yeah, Barb... Barb- oh, go ahead. No, because Jess is distracted by carolers that are outside the house singing. So she goes outside to listen to the carols. Well, to set it up, Barbara's still, you know, passed out from in bed from her uh, drunken rage. Right. At one point was like, as a kind of a full scare, was like almost like screaming and gasping what seemed for help because she's an asthmatic. So Jess had to get her her inhaler. Right. Keep saying, oh, I'm having this weird dream of someone standing over my bed. It's like, we know he's there. Yeah. We know he's fucking there. It's set up. And then it goes on to later with, you were saying, to see with the, the carolers where Jess goes outside to see the carolers. Right. And... Sorry, but before we go any further, like, I always thought carolers are just, like, are just inherently creepy or just the songs they say, like, just had a dark atmosphere. And maybe it's because this movie kind of tainted my view of carolers, but it's especially this scene where it's cross-cut between just listening to the carolers that are outside and Bar being murdered upstairs in the house. You gotta handle them like Mr. Bean does. How? Uh, they're caroling at his door. He opens the door, sits down, is enjoying chocolates and some champagne while listening to them. 
He gets a little sleepy, picks up the chocolates, carries them over as if he's going to give it to them, which is kind of why they do it for candy and stuff. Yeah. And as they finish their last thing, he just closes the door on them and walks back <laughs> <laughs> without even blinking. Just shuts the door and just... <sighs> so, and Billy picks up a glass statue of, I guess... Unicorn. A unicorn. And it's one of the first, like, we get to really see, other than, like, big stabbing motion and everything like that, and... We don't really see the impact or anything. Like we do see blood and everything that's kind of sprayed, but it's done very tastefully. It's not done like a cheap slasher movie. No, it's done very well, it, it, cutting back and forth to just wa- watching the carolers with a lovely smile, enjoying yeah, them. It, it's very unnerving, and it shows there's a lot of care that's put into this, where the but, movies that kind of inspired afterwards, with the exception of Halloween. Um, when Power Metal kills. Yes. The unicorn killed her. <laughs> Um, that reminds me of, uh, uh, you, you, did you ever see, uh, Cabin in the Woods? I don't think I did. I'm not sure. Well, do you want me, uh, it involves spoilers. Uh, not now, because we're doing a podcast. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Let's keep on track. It involves, it involves unicorns. Okay, cool. Rega- regardless, uh, and then Phil goes in to check on Barb later on, and Phil almost gets to, like, even, like, almost a scarier death, because the camera is outside in the hallway, pans with her as she walks through the doorway into Barb's room and the door is not all the way closed. It's slightly like I mean it's not all the way like opens like it's slightly like something looks like something's blocking it. She turns around and the door just closes. So Billy was behind there and kills her. We don't see what happens to her Presumably stabbed with another glass ornament that the, uh, the Barb had in the room. It goes with establishing the whole killer could be anywhere thing. Yes. Where it's like, we know he's there. We've already seen him kill. We know he's doing shit. And right. then it's a big wide open shot of the hallway. Yeah. Many doors. Mm-hmm. And you're just sitting there wondering which one he's going to pop out of. Right. And he pops out of the one that he was in. Yeah. And so Lieutenant Fuller informs Nash. All right. And Nash. I'm th- I need you to do this for me. You call Jess. You tell her to get out of the house. Don't screw this up. Don't tell her why. Just tell her to get out of the house. Don't if you go screw any- this up, Nash. I'll kill you. Yeah. And Nash tries what his damnedest. Na- what does Nash do? He tries his like. I, that's the one thing. It's kind of redeeming because he. You can definitely tell this effort of him not trying to screw this up because he's known he screwed up early in the day and his job is probably on the line and a woman's life. A woman's life is in his hands. So he calls back Jess and he tells her and he implores her just put down the phone and go outside trust me just go outside and go to the cop she's already unnerved wants to know what's wrong wants to go get her two roommates and she's like all right i'll get everybody from upstairs no and nash freaks out like no don't go and he tells her there's another the the killer's coming the other caller is inside the house the guy is in the house and she runs outside initially but then comes back inside to go get her friends and her friends bye Phil! 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 Please! Very big, another big performance. I'm just like... I was expecting her to scream, where art thou, Romeo? Yeah. And then plunge a knife into her heart when she realizes... If Billy just comes out like, a plague on your sorority house! And stabs her. A plague on your cunt! (laughs) (laughs) He wishes VD upon her. I can see that as like a... Uh, kind of grindcore. Uh, a- Rob Zombie's Black Christmas. Rob Zombie's Romeo and Juliet. 
<laughs> I don't want to see that. Instead of instead of killing herself by by stabbing herself in the heart with a knife, she has to like disembowel herself gruesomely with a chainsaw while swearing every bad word. Yep. And naked while she's doing it. In the seventies. In the seventies. <laughs> anyway, so she goes up. She arms herself with a fire poker and goes upstairs. She goes up to Barb's room and sees her two friends dead. And what's really cool about this is that the door is mostly open, but you know when you open a door a certain amount, there's a little crack through from where the wall and the door hinges, the door yeah. is with the hinges that you could see. Right behind it is Billy with only a light shining on his wide Wanna- open eyeball. It's me, Billy. At which point she just... This is what everybody weird. should do. She slams the door... On into, him. into him as hard as you can, and he, he screams, ah! And he freaks out because, like, it's rare. Like, you think of, like, slasher movies that come after that. Like, you can hit him with a bus, and they get back up and keep going once the zombie killer kind of, like, became a thing. But this is such an early in the days of slasher movies. Like, hitting a dude with a door could slow him down. Or, or even, like, one of my favorite moments. He's in, human. Yeah, he's human. And my favorite moments in Scream when Sydney's being chased through Stu's house. She cracks him with the... the uh, when the doors of the house and knocks him on his ass. Yeah. And so she runs downstairs. Where he gets her over the balcony, grabs her by the hair, just because she's about to oh, run like, oh. I was watching, rewatching it last night, and I jumped them. I'm like, I know it's coming, but I don't know the exact time. Props to Olivia for letting someone grab her by the hair like and that. And yank her back like that. her scalp off. And, like, fucked up her neck and stuff like that. So she, and then she hits him with the fire poker and then goes back down. And, Barricades know, herself downstairs. And then... Really creepy moment. She's like, like at the bottom of the stairs, waiting for Billy to come in. So she's like, "All right, I can get the drop on him if he comes in." And Billy's banging on the door, banging on the door, banging on the door, and he's screaming, and it's getting louder and louder. And then silence. You wonder, like, all right, where'd he go? So then the justice is like, "All right, let's see if I can get, I can find my way out of here. If there's another exit out of the basement." So she goes through the basement trying to find an exit, and it's darkly lit. Like, it's only, like, the street lights are kind of, like, filtering through the bottom. Of the Not street. all the windows are also, like, clear windows. They're also, like, these, these like, almost almost stained glass-looking, like, decorative yeah. things that are designed to not let you see in the basements. Yeah, they're fogged up and stuff like that. The, the regular windows are fogged up. These other windows are, 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 are fogged up as well, even though they're not visible through Yeah, them. and then she starts seeing somebody... Scrape off the frost of one of the windows trying well, to get in. She sees him walking around. Here's someone calling out to her. And saying, yes, yes, yes. And breaks in and it's... It's Peter. It's Peter. And you, and you wonder, like, all right. You also notice that when he stabbed Barb, Billy has the same hair as Peter. Yes. And because that was a very popular haircut at the time. So it would be... Yeah. Like, you see, like, three other people have the same It's like the haircut. Eric Idle haircut. Yes. 70s Monty Python Eric Idle. And he... And... Peter is none the wiser what's going on because all he knows is he heard her screaming the door is locked and he kicks in the door thinking something kicks in the window of the basement thinking something's wrong somebody's attacking her and he approaches her and she's not responding and she's just standing there at the ready with the fire poker and he's in in the corner behind the stairs yeah and he approaches her closer and closer and that's when the cops kick in the door well all of a sudden we hear scream cut to cops race you know screeching up to the house breaking in the door going downstairs and there's the two of them out cold. Peter has been killed, bludgeoned to death, bleeding yeah. from every hole, including his ass, probably. Probably. Jess is, like, out. Yeah. Looks like she's dead, but she starts to stir a little. Right. And, I mean, more... <laughs> no, I'm not going to make that joke. Never mind. Um, what? I don't know. Whatever, whatever inappropriate say, like, joke was, you're about to make. I was going to say, like, 
uh, more convincing dead body than Marion Cotillard, Dark Knight Rises. But <laughs> like, uh, sorry, it's like the biggest part of contention of that I movie. I thought this was going live on. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So, movie ends with her, her back in her bed. The only thing that would have made that death better is if Marion Cotillard's bowels loosened. <laughs> you always shit your pants when you die. Like, so, Chef could be... <laughs> Nope, he's dead. He's dead. Uh, so the movie ends with uh, Jess back in her bed. Heavily sedated. <laughs> Heavily sedated. All the cops are just like, all right, we've done a good job. Couldn't believe it was Peter. Yep. And then the father of Clara is sitting there at her side, like making sure the she's okay. The fart smeller. He, he smelled the ultimate fart and passed out from it. Of shock. And then they take him to the hospital. And so one of the cops goes into her room and turns off the lights and she's out. Reporters would want to get in because they want to know what's up. This has become a breaking story by now. And, like, the one thing about this scene, like, other than, like, one kind of, like, cutaway shot, it's just one long take that pulls back from a close-up of Jess, goes almost like a 360 around, like, observing the entire geography of the house, and pushes in back on the stair, the ladder up into the attic. Up the attic to the bodies of Mrs. Mac and Claire that have not been found. And the door of the attic moves. It closes. So... Presumably, Billy is still alive. With the with Billy saying, whispering, saying, Agnes, it's me, Billy. Confirming that it was not Peter. Not Peter. And the cops are outside, and nobody knows that there was two bodies that were discovered. It ends just like that. I wonder when they find the bodies. When they start to smell. That'd be something. It's like, what's that smell in the house? It's like, oh, shit, here was Claire all along. <sighs> and Mr. Harrison really pass out from a smell. <sighs> she okay. was wrapped in plastic. She's okay. Well preserved. Yes. I mean, I, I wonder if she's dry clean or washed. And well. Mrs. Max boozy bowels loosen <laughs> from being dead. I just wonder if like like her like her neck just starts giving away from the tor like the and is like split, 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 and all of a sudden her body just falls Go her right head. through the attic. And, <laughs> okay. So let's alright. Let's talk about that very ending, because there's kind of a kind of a point of a contention in some people that's kind of just like almost like a non ending. Your feelings on the ending of this. Well, I well I'm, shut up, Cartman. I kind of really used to love that little twist up until a couple of years ago when I tried. Show, well, I showed some friends of mine it, and they didn't get it. They were like, "What? Wait, what?" Because throughout the whole movie, my you know the friends I watched it with were very much in suspense. And one masked me. It's like, "Oh, do we find out who it is at the end?" Because it really is a mystery of who Billy is. It's a it's a who done it at that point. It's yeah. a who done it at that point. And I say, "Yes, we do." Well, no, she didn't say who Billy is. Did we find out who the killer is? Yes, we do. So at the end, when she's convinced that the killer is Peter and said, oh, we found out who it is and we see it's Billy, she's like, I thought we found out who the killer is. It's like, we do. It's not Peter. It's Billy. It's yeah. a twist. And like, what? Huh? Huh? That kind of stuck with me just because I, I, I feel like to be scared of a horror movie killer, you have to establish something. You have to get some kind of establishment. Maybe it's just me being used to all these, you know, scary movie killers uh -huh. that, like, as the movie goes on, you kind of find out. You either find out who they are in the beginning or you find out about them later on. Right. This, you never find out anything. You don't know what Billy's deal is. You don't know who he is, where he came from. Is he some kind of, you know, person that disappeared long ago? Is he is he actually Peter? Is it, it being Peter, that would have made more sense where he's just some fucked up person, even though the whole Billy persona wasn't really looked through, but at least it's something. Yeah. That's Peter basically fucking snapping. Yeah. Um, I remember when I first watched this, it was my, uh, my ex and I, we I, we gotten off Netflix and stuff like that, watched it at the very end, and it was the first time of both of us watching it, and we're just really unnerved by it, like, oh, he's still, he's still out there, and it's like, 
And it's like it's kind of like almost like I had the ending of Friday Thirteenth, but done like almost like a little better. Like the boy, the boy who pulled me in the water. I'm like man, we didn't find any boy. And he's still there. But Jason, even though he's not the killer, he is still established. Yeah. But uh, all right, then with that in mind, <laughs> what about the Evil Dead? We do not. There's a force out there. Sure, we have backstory of the of the ancient ruins, like inside the Necronomicon. We do not see. What the creature looks like. But we established that it's a force created from the Necronomicon. That's all we really need. Okay. There's nothing about Billy. Billy's just literally just a person who walks up into a college attic and starts harassing women and killing them slowly one by one. That's it. With that in mind, I understand your complaint there, but I'm I'm willing to go with it because I think the movie's total was such like... I don't think it kills the movie in any way, shape, or form. It's just something that kind of like... It sticks out to you. It sticks out to me. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go in the fucking internet. It ruins it. Yeah, I mean, last podcast like Dakota kind of scorched the earth of uh, nerds on the internet anyway. So uh, it's, what with people complaining about people ruining things? Yeah, complain. You know, he's making fun of, like redditors and spe- like people who like who get really shitty about certain things on the internet. So I, like, I just complain about people that just use the phrase "it ruins it." Like, yeah. this is not Gollum. It is not a fucking dead rabbit being cooked. No, it ruins it. Fats, hobbits. Oh, sorry. It's hard to ruin things, too. It's like yeah. you, you could ruin like an egg sandwich by leaving the eggs out too long. Of course. You can't really ruin something that's already established. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's all down a matter of taste and stuff like that. So Off topic again. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so our, how about like, all right, like we have like the kind of the film techniques of this movie. Like we have like the establishing like the POV of the killer. It was the first time it became incredibly prominent, which become a lot of, kind of like a – a benchmark of the slash movies are coming forward. Your feelings on that, utilizing this movie? Absolutely, fucking love them. Does mm-hmm. them, does them perfectly. Does them great. The POV stuff is done great. The fact that they are hiding the killer and they use the POV shot is also great. Yeah. The fact that they use the POV shot as a red herring with the person that they want you to believe is is the killer is in Peter. Right. Is awesome. Mm-hmm. I love it, and like I said, I feel like it's an ingredient that. One ingredient that was brought into the overarching slasher genre that would establish at the end of the seventies. Yes, and and like so, like the POV opens up at the outside of the house. Billy approaches the front door, looks back, looks up at the windows, goes over to the side of the house, and climbs the fucking trellis. Trellis, and the camera is attached to him, like on like a kind of like a shoulder, like rig too. This is before the Steadicam, folks. So the cameraman had to had to literally have it strapped to his fucking body. And a climb a two-story house up into the attic. Oh, I mean, like, mounted to his fucking body. Like, yeah. Like, not with some, you know, harness that weighs, like, 70 pounds for some camera that is a little floaty to begin with. He had to have the thing physically in his, all of its dead weight glory stuff. Yeah, so you, you have, like, you have the camera, you have the magazine, the lens of it. So that's probably 30 pounds right there. Then you have, like, the thing of whatever the hell it's attached to onto his body. And he has to climb up there, not get hit, like, and... Not show the crew around him or anything like that, and not fall off the place. Not fall off the trellis. And you think that's the cameraman doing that and stuff like that. Like, you figure, of course, there's not that many stunts in this movie. But you kind of like, you think of the insurance company that's running the that's running the bail the, the bond for this movie. You're wondering like, um, how what happens if like the cameraman falls or the thing breaks? We have a possibly dead or paralyzed cameraman. We have. A Destroyed camera and all that film is uh, well, gone. I, I wonder, did they like put a climbing harness on him and like 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 when you do rock climbing at the fucking the fun place? Well, this movie, like I said, like in the documentary we watched before we did this podcast, they had a roughly like a little over six hundred thousand dollars as a grant from the Canadian government to make the movie. Do you think they had enough money for that? 
I don't know. I mean, they had some kind of star power in there. Maybe I mean, someone had it in his closet I would, who enjoyed climbing. I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, like, I presume there's rock climbers in Canada. They have to be and everything like that. They're, out, they're outdoorsy type and stuff like that. And so cameraman climbs up the terrace and goes right into the house. And, like, that's when it should be, like, Romeo, Romeo, where art thou, Romeo? As Romeo or Billy's ascending the side of the building. Where art thou, Billy? <laughs> oh, my God. I just want to take, like, take dialogue from the... He stabs himself in the heart with a glass unicorn. <laughs> and then goes into the house, goes out down the, the attic into the actual house itself, and... And I think one of the best parts of this movie, especially in the early parts, is sets up the entire geography of the sorority house. Knowing where the attic is in relation to all the rooms, where the staircase is, and so... Atmosphere. Yeah, and it's not shot in all close-ups, and you don't know where the fuck everybody is. It's kind of like another indictment of Rob Zombie movies, or like a lot of horror movies. You Shaky say, cam. Shaky cam, and you don't know. It's, everything's long lens and compressed, and everything's out of focus, and you're like, where the... F- I, I, I can't tell... Something's there, I guess. I don't know. And it's kind of like it kind of robs you of the suspense and the atmosphere of the movie. The score is very minimalist. Yeah, and because like the only like real score you have is other than the carolers, you have like just kind of just droning sound. Generic shrieky violins at times. Yeah, and it's not saying that do you think it's a detriment to the movie? Uh, No, because I kind of forget about it. I kind of had to remind myself of it just now. And the score, it's one of those things like if it doesn't stand out, you won't really notice that it's gone. Right. I mean, like you, you think of like most of like John Carpenter was describing uh, scores one time where like he thinks of like, like John Williams's work. He's Carpenter believes it's like Mickey Mouse music where it's timed specifically to actions and with the visuals and everything like that. So like you listen to say the asteroid run in Empire Strikes Back and you listen to his score. You know precise when moments of when Han is evading one asteroid and the TIE fires are getting hit and stuff like that. And you can see, like, C-3PO covering his eyes and stuff like that because the score is timed perfectly with that. Then you look at, listen to, like, John Carpenter's score. It's very atmospheric. It's almost like kind of like carpet where it's, it's just a nice layer underneath that kind of sets the mood and works for that scene to scene. And without the visuals, it's kind of, it works as a nice musical piece, but otherwise you don't you can't tell when in the movie it is you kind of have to look at the track like oh that that that's when it's happening well, i kind of feel like this one intends to be quiet just because it's it's taking you more into the uh point of view of the killer right so you're sort of you're sort of in his eyes hearing what he hears seeing what he sees so mm-hmm. having some kind of score might just be a slight detriment to that gotcha because like if it was like think of like the john ottman score for halloween h2o where it's just like too big for its own uh, for and it's a way detriment. too especially the fucking redo of the theme song <laughs> where i swear to you i swear to you towards like the ending part of it they 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 go in like a chord progression that is almost like major chord happy sounding and isn't like shouldn't like minor chords like isn't like it, it's it's meant to be darker sounding more evil but they almost use like a combination of co- uh, uh, I, I feel like it's the chord progression Okay. What they are using almost makes it feel, makes it gives it a happy sound, and whatever. And the thing is, it's it's nothing I could really point out over this podcast. Right. You, you have to have literally have it be listening to it in front of you for mm. me to point it out. Gotcha. I, I at least what I've done with every when I've had to point it out to everybody, they don't hear it, and then I show it for them. And you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But it it was enough, so like enough to like call attention to yourself that you still remember it to this day. Yes. And so. All right, then, like, of course, like, the score, like, 
Somebody, like, I listened to the Black Christmas score actually a couple of weeks ago just to get in the mood for Christmas stuff like that because I listen to horror movie scores all the time. And somebody put up the uh, uh, a video of, like, somebody got the vinyl, like a limited edition vinyl of this, and opens with, like, Silent Night, sung by carolers and stuff like that. And then it's the phone conversations. Like, because it's not oh, a lot of God. score. So it's the phone conversations on vinyl. That's a hell of a thing to buy on vinyl. I, I mean... And play for your friends and family back so in the 70s. I mean, just imagine, like, okay, you put that on, it's a Christmas party. Even if you're amongst horror fans, and you're playing, you put that vinyl on, you're having a conversation, like, you're having favorite food, you're having dinner and stuff like that, and all of a sudden, like... Big cunt. And you're like, uh... It depends on what kind of party you're going to. Well, yeah, if you're going to... If you're dropping acid and having an orgy, that's perfect. Perfect soundtrack. Oh, no, like... I mean, it'd be a good thing to drop acid if you had a good mood. If you had a bad mood, drop acid, and you have that listening on it, you would have a very bad time. You're gonna have a bad time. have a bad time. Oh, man, we're just having more South Park references to this podcast as we well, go. I've been watching a lot of it. This podcast is not sponsored by Hulu, Pro- Hulu Plus. I've just started my seven-day trial, which I will probably cancel on the sixth day. <laughs> oh, the just sixth like I wish God did with Earth, canceled it on the sixth day. <laughs> Or scheduled the six days so we'd have to get a shitty Arnold movie. So he could have the seventh day and all other days afterwards free. <laughs> the sixth day, they'd watch End of Days. Oh, boy. Anyway, so, yeah, the score, minimalist, but effective. All right. Now, that's kind of like an overview of the actors and the acting in the movie. Your feelings on acting. Is there a bad performance in this movie? No. Everyone, I feel, serves the role they're supposed to. What, what they're supposed to be playing, they do. Like I said, I feel like Olivia Hussey's role was a little just too big at times. Her acting right. was just a little too big. Like maybe she forgot she wasn't in a play. True. It does seem like she's playing to like the last person in the auditorium. Yes. Her, hers was a little hers was a little noticeably Bill, big. Bill! Bob! Hello! Bill. <laughs> Sound like Ben Margera's mom when she saw the crocodile in her fucking... <laughs> oh, that was also Phil. Phil? Hi, Phil! Oh, my God. I mean, how many people are making Viva La Bam uh, references? Uh, that was a Jackass the movie reference. Was it in the Jackass movie? Yeah, oh, when, okay. When, when Bam Margera put a live crocodile in, in his uh, oh kitchen. Oh, my God, you're right. And his mom came up. Phil? Phil? Oh, Jesus Christ. Wow. Anyway. But, like, uh, like him, uh, like her being playing a little big or the actor who's playing the father being very snooty, you think that's a bit too much? No, because I could tell just by his appearance that's what they were going for. Some okay. guy with a stick up his ass who doesn't like this new generation of youngsters that do nothing but take drugs and fuck. I mean, there's one point where, like, Margaret Kidder is, like, going on for a rant and stuff like that, and it's while they're at the dinner table at the story <coughs> house before uh, she goes um, – Margaret Kidder goes up and passes out. And it's her – it's the father and the dead mother is kind of, like, watching her actually – rambles on about turtles fucking for three days and then she would go on to watch zebras fuck and stuff like that she was the highlight of the movie margot kidder oh yeah but like before it gets to her it's like they're kind of like both of them just kind of like uh and like the father looks right down the goddamn lens and stares right into the audience it's like uh like the camera operator should have been like uh like uh bob uh he looked right into the camera lens and be like i don't give a fuck uh he was going for that maybe he was Sort of looking at us like, just like really? with a look of like, is this bitch serious? Like, is this what we, is this the kind of people we're dealing? Is this the this is the audience we're we're aiming towards? Aren't we? It, it was a very Ace Ventura when he came out of the bathroom after being mauled by the shark. <laughs> Everyone looked at him. Do not go in there. Woo! And then they, all the rich people are just like, mm. 
Like the look of it was that that snooty look of disgust. Now I just now I just imagine that the father was played by Udo Kier. How it would be I would have loved to feed the father to a shark. <laughs> yes, this is a Claire. This is a Claire's room as he's bobbing up and down in the water and gets eaten by a shark. Oh man, but Jim the shark should have played the father. <laughs> He would have been, what, like 10 years old at the time? No, he should have played Billy. He would have had even a bigger performance on the phone. Instead, he would have called her with his ass. <laughs> I'd like to ask you a few questions. Uh, I mean, there are Canadians, so a lot of farts would be, yeah. about, if we're going by South Park logic and everything. But anyway. Which is supreme. Yes. Um, yeah, Mario Kidder's performance as uh, Barb, and being this, this kind of drunkard the entire movie, she does steal every scene she's in. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that the only other highlight, of, <laughs> the only other actor that really level, like just elevates the material, it's the guy who's playing Nash because I think because he's playing, he's playing a dunce so perfectly that you kind of can't. You're just like, oh my god, like how much dumber can they make him? Like, oh, he's gonna fuck this up too. I feel it? like the only character that's a missed opportunity is the character of Chris, Claire's boyfriend, who's with them until the fucking little girl is found, and then we never see him again. So you're saying he should have showed back at the house and then, like, I don't know, being killed by Billy and stuff like that? In well, he, he was with them all the way for so much of this stuff. Yeah. I would have had him in there be, like, someone, you know, or have him as a suspect. Yeah, that could have worked. Because it's like, oh, little girl's dead. That's probably should be raising more questions because my girlfriend's missing and this little girl's dead. I should probably go back to the sorority house. But he's like, nah, I'm going to go home or go back to playing his hockey that he was playing earlier in the movie. Like, he only goes to the sorority house, meets with Claire's father. Yeah. And then they all go out to do the to the search. Right. That's it. And then that's like the last time we see him. I think we maybe we do we do we see him during the search or is that kind of when he fades into uh nothingness? No, we, no, when the mother starts oh no, when the woman's the little girl when the other girl search party girl starts screaming and everybody starts him. turning around in the direction of wherever the scream is coming from. I think that's the last time we see him unless And that's he, a wrap for him. <laughs> unless he's in at the very end of the movie dragging the father out. No, I thought that was one of the cops. Okay, because yeah, I know two people drag the drag him out of the of the of uh, I think out of uh, Justice's room at the end. But I have to double check like that. So don't crucify me if I get that wrong. Yeah, but like that's another misunderstanding. That'd be another place for a perfect suspect. And I think it's because you look at the movie Scream, which like every male like lead in that movie was a potential suspect at that point, and I think that's why that was done so perfectly. Not saying that's a bad thing here. It's just a missed opportunity. Um, well, I mean, thankfully here that well, they establish one person and they make it credible. It's not like fucking shitty ass prom night six years later where like, oh yeah, the little girl's murder was blamed on some mental patient, and oh yeah, he just happened to escape, but we found him. So uh, this guy, pay attention to this guy. See all these close ups of this guy. See all these close ups of this guy. Pay attention to this guy. I, it's only like, ne- but, it's only- but who is this guy? Yeah, never mind, guy. Relax. He's the brother of the victim. Hey, relax, guy. Trust me. Pay attention to this guy. Look over here. I mean, it's almost as bad as uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Five when the the uh, mental patient gets killed and they keep cutting to the closest of the paramedic. Like, oh my god, it's we're this try- guy. It's this guy. I mean, hope everybody's paying attention because this guy's very important. It's passive aggressive. Uh, filmmaking. Oh my god. That, that's passive aggressive screenwriting. <laughs> passive aggressive filmmaking. That's a term. Wow. I don't know. I'm just going to keep my eye out for more passive aggressive filmmaking from now on. The only way, the only way you go see passive aggressive is when, filmmaking is when you ask someone, you, do you want to go see a movie tonight? Do you want to go see this? No, nah, not really. No, I, I guess. Do you it. want to? Mm-hmm. 
Tim, do you want to go? See, do you want to go see that tonight? Because if you don't, that's that's cool. You know, I mean, we could we could do something else. We could. Do you want to go see it? No, if you don't, I mean, it's that's totally okay. We can know? go see like, it. Like, no, but you said you don't want to. So I mean, like the whole night is like ruined now because of you. Because I'm passing the. Let's go see it. God. Oh man, I've actually been in many of those situations. Yeah, me too. It's. I just imitated my ex completely right there. So did I. <laughs> oh wow. Oh, anyway. All right. Any other thoughts you want to bring Never up? Oh, okay. Do anything. Well, one last thing. All right. How important is this movie to the slasher genre? Yes, it's important. <sighs> I I feel like it. I feel like only in recent years does it get the credit it truly deserves. Mm-hmm. I feel like it should get a bigger credit. Because it really did help establish so many things that are fucking copied. Yeah. Copied and in some ways done better. I, I think Michael Myers is a million times better than Billy. Yes. I think Michael Myers, the fact that he is an established force, uses... And does not speak. Not saying that's a d- d- detriment to Billy or anything like well, that. Well, that, that goes to enhance him. Yeah. Like, he is, he is the established... He's, he's what Leatherface is, the mass killer with a signature weapon... He's what Billy is, the, the, the stalking, could-be-anywhere killer. Right. And he's quiet, and he's more of a fucking force of nature than he is a human. Mm-hmm. So you put all those elements together, you put all those ingredients together, the word I used earlier. Yeah. And you've got fucking perfection. Mm-hmm. It's funny. And then you, then you take it, and then you make the Pepsi One version of it, and then you have Jason. Yes. It's one calorie, not enough. Of course. It's funny that you actually bring up, like, Halloween's brought up, because I was walking at work the other day, and I started thinking, like, how did Nick, Nick Castle just walk? He just walked naturally, just let, like, Les limbs, like, kind of be loose and everything like that. And so, consciously, I was just trying to walk like Nick Castle, kind of like how I guess the thought I process. I do that all the time. Isn't yeah. It great? It's awesome. And you're just like, oh, so this is how it was. Stand up straight. Stand up straight and just sway. Arms, arms moving back and forth a bit. Yeah. And just, but not, like, like flailing about or anything like that. But, and you just think you. Not just, the John Travolta Saturday Night Live walk. No. That's only when you have Bee Gees playing in your headphones, though. Of course. Uh, be- people should be listening to Bee Gees all the fucking time. Anyway. Um, I used to think they were women. <laughs> Just listening to the, the Yeah, to the, their, like, the foul subtles they had, yeah. Uh, um, so those 70s pants being too tight. <laughs> and you ha- yeah, exactly, you just, it sounded just like that. <laughs> and you just imagine like, the moment where, like, or the scene where he's walking across the road, the street, I should say, towards Laurie Shorty. She's banging on the door trying to get let back into... Uh, the Doro residence. Oh, I'll watch that over and over. I'll rewind, play, rewind, it, it, play. It's just—it's a fascinating part of just both acting, cinematography, and everything like that. What, uh, we're blowing we, this movie even uh, Halloween even more, but look, this is what we do. Oh, why not? When we did Halloween Reborn, I was watching that scene over and over again, and and it broke my heart that we didn't have a scene like that. I know, but actually, the funny thing is, I want to do another Halloween fan film. You want to do a sequel to Halloween Reborn? Uh, maybe not a Halloween sequel. Halloween Deborn. Halloween you're, abortion. Now you're fucking dead. <laughs> Halloween abortion, aka Rob Zombie movies. Oh yeah. No oh, man, if he ever hears this, oh, he's not gonna hear us. Fuck him. I mean, somebody who plays like he's ever... too busy complaining about skaters. Exactly. Anyway, and uh, making more shitty movies. So, I wonder if he hypes up how banned they are everywhere. Like, oh, no one. You know, it's like no, because no one likes it. Not because it's not violent, too violent or something. <laughs> Like, no, the MPAA is just tired of watching your fucking movie. <laughs> Jesus. Nothing to do with the violence. And, and, and they deal with Michael Bay. They just wish it would go away. And didn't mean for that the prime. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I do think this is an important movie. And, like, for people, like, from just, like, if you want, like, because I've studied horror movies. I've studied it in different 
eras of like history, uh, whether it be these the beginning of the medium and the silent era, the universal of the 30s and 40s, the hammer ones of the 50s and early 60s, the independent boom, as well as the precursor to slash movies, slasher movies, so on and so forth. I do think you owe it to yourself that you should watch this because it's kind of curious to see where the tropes came from and where like where they had came from from like from the previous movies I mentioned, where the things that this movie Black Christmas had added, and then how it was perfected in Halloween. Would you agree? Absolutely. I'm gonna go go with if I could sum it up. More important than it gets credit for, even to this day. Right. And it's actually, the, I know we keep bringing up Halloween before uh, several times. However, there is a bit of a story that has come out since years have gone by, both Halloween and Black Christmas coming out, that Bob Clark had this con- apparently had this conversation with John Carpenter. Carpenter asked him, like, I really enjoyed Black Christmas. Would you ever do a sequel to that? And he's like, oh, not really, but I had an idea for it. And Carpenter pressed for him, like, what's the idea? That Billy was eventually caught, sent to a mental institution, and years later, breaks out, and we, fo- we follow him again after his breakout. Now, if you know Halloween, it sounds very similar to that. Do you think there is, I guess, Black Christmas purists that kind of like turn their nose up at Halloween, saying that Carpenter ripped him off? Do you think that is valid, that point? Rip off? No. I definitely think it paid homage in many ways. Mm-hmm. I, I think it also took an idea and made it better. Yes. I'm not saying Bob Clark's a bad filmmaker, but I do think maybe Carpenter has maybe was a better craftsman than I think Carpenter took I think Carpenter took all the elements that made Black Christmas great, mm-hmm. put them into his own type of thing and made it better. And for less money. And for less for a lot less money. For for, half. Ne- for nearly half of the money. Now I tried to find the conversion rate uh, for nineteen seventies dollars between uh, Canadian dollars and American dollars, but it was no no such luck. But I know I found out today. It's worth these coupons to Benigans <laughs> and free bubblegum for every Canadian. <laughs> uh, it turns out that every uh, um, seven, like what was it? Uh, seventy five cents American is like for one dollar Canadian or something like that, or it's, oh, wow. or, or it's vice versa. I think I think I think I reversed the two, but uh, yeah, I do think there is. Carpenter took the ideas and made it his own and kind of like I keep saying use the word perfect but it really was the slasher genre perfected I mean sure you had other innovations afterward you had like Friday the 13th and kind of like the not really any innovations like the next big innovation after Halloween was probably Nightmare on Elm Street because it added a supernatural ed, ed, uh, totally addition to it wasn't it. your traditional slasher you know sneaking around or whatever he, no, he I, fucked with your head and then struck yeah and I think that's that's the power of Wes Craven as just being a, a creative force because he was never really settled with just the kind of mundane like even even like people under the stairs has a lot more going on than it does. Or I guess you could, you'd say like, what about Vampire in Brooklyn? Like, well, I guess I really can't. Fuck Vampire. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd say I'm a horror fan. Definitely check it out and everything like that. As well as like, and especially like if you're, it's a good date movie because like that's a like, person like would cling to you because it's, it's a very unnerving movie. Your final thoughts on this? Um... See Black Christmas, even though we just spoiled the whole fucking movie for you. Of course. I mean, the movie's more than 40 <laughs> You're still years. listening to this. You, you pretty much know what's going to happen, so I'm sorry. Yeah, but, like, still watch it, enjoy it. You'll, you'll dig it and everything like that. 
And it's definitely a Christmas movie. Definitely put it on around the holidays since it's coming up. And it'll, this will probably be going up on Christmas Eve. Order it from Shout Factory. Yes. I am not their official press agent, but mine will be in the mail soon. And I'm sure it is beautiful. Yes. And because we, Shout Factory is rarely uh, driven, uh, led us astray. So, yeah. And, I just got their Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 Blu-ray the other week, and I'm thrilled with that. Oh, yeah. And I've yet to watch it, and I presume it's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's lovely. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so, all right then, Mike. If you want people to follow you on social media, they won't follow you on social I, media. Don't follow me on social media. Good. All right. If you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, TimothyRooney2. And you can follow this podcast's Twitter account uh, called at GingerGeekPod, and it'll be Anything Goes. And if you try searching for me, you'll get more results than you'll, than you'll even want to sit there and wade through, because I have the most common name ever. So. Yes. If you want to follow me on Twitter, on Instagram at TRooney1012, my Facebook and YouTube page, both under the same, same name of Through the Lens Productions, where my latest short film, Dead Love, which Mike was, was in. Uh, I'll be is, making an appearance in the bathroom in about 10 minutes, because I have to take a huge shit. <laughs> yes. As well as Bullseye and a bunch of other short films that are up there. And if you like that stuff, subscribe and show it to your friends if they if they dig it. So buy our merchandise, even though we don't have any yet. Yeah, Just give us money. Please support us. All right, Mike. Thank you again for being a part of this. Thanks uh, for having me, buddy. Of course. And uh, it was funny because like we were supposed to do this la- like. Two weeks ago. Then I got a cold, and then this week I got a stomach virus. And we're just like, oh, fuck. And I'm but like. We, we made it. Yeah, we, we, we sold it on, and we made sure to get this done. So, hope everybody's enjoyed this podcast review of Black Christmas, the original. And we'll be talking to you soon. So, see you later. <laughs>